The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Happy April Fool's Day. Welcome to the Connected Table with Melanie Young and David Ransom, your insatiably curious culinary couple. Each week we bring you the dynamic people who work front and center and behind the scenes in food, wine, spirits, and hospitality. Let me tell you, we are fools for good wine. And this is our Wine Up Wednesday because we've got two of the biggest names in the wine business on our show. First, our first guest, let's just set him up. Um, anyone who has the stamina to travel around the world for a year with Kevin Zraeli, visiting over 20 countries, 80 wine regions, and 500 appellations, tasting more than 7,000 wines for the sake of research, gets our ahead of a true approval. And he's also run with the Bulls in Pamplona. So he is mighty. He is the mighty Robin Kelly O'Connor, who for many, many years served as the Director of Trade and Consumer Education for Americas for the Bordeaux Wine Bureau, and this is Bordeaux in Premier Week, so we're going to talk about Bordeaux. He also uh, was Lead Specialist and Head of Wine Americas for Christie's Auction House and Director of Sales and Education for the Manhattan retailer, Sherry Lehman. Uh, he's a past president of the Society of Wine Educators, and he's known as an educator, a raconteur, and an expert on all areas of wine, especially Bordeaux. More recently, he is uh, working with Italian wine merchants in New York City as a collector liaison and also does lecturing at the Italian Culinary Center, also in New York, and is lead consultant and wine expert behind Buy Wine Now. Welcome, Robin. Thank you very much, Melanie. Great to be here, David. Hello. Thank you. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, Robin. We've obviously known known each other for a long time. We've done a lot of work together and tasted a lot of wine together over the years, whether it's been here or anywhere around the country or even the world at times. So it's nice to have you finally on our show and kind of pick your brain a little bit about the wine industry and your thoughts on it. So welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Well, I have a question, and then we're going to dive into some Bordeaux talk since it is the week. You're a highly regarded wine educator. How has the training to become a master of wine or master sommelier changed over the years? Because like, people see movies like Somme, and they go, wow, that's really hard. Has it changed dramatically? It has. I mean, when I started out, I, I, I tell you, I had no compass whatsoever. I got interested. I went to University of Maryland, and we, we happened to have a – wine appreciation course in the adult education center, uh, which was called university college. And I was a little underage. I think I was 19, but I snuck in anyway and took this course. Uh, it, it was absolutely, uh, turned my world around, but I, I didn't know where to go. And finally the instructor said, go to Europe, young man, get out of here, get on a plane and start visiting all the vineyards you can. And um, so I went east. I, I, I didn't look west. And, um, and, and in one way, I mean, I don't regret it, but, but I certainly would have gone to California had someone booted me that direction. But uh, anyway, I ended up, uh, funny enough, I went over for two months on a Eurorail pass and an Icelandic flight. And 
I didn't get to Luxembourg to fly back because I had no money. I couldn't pay for a train to go to Paris to Luxembourg. And then I ended up staying five years and studying winemaking in Bordeaux and Champagne and Switzerland and Spain and so a little bit learned, in Southern France. So you learned France. by doing, but, but, but what did you study? I mean, you didn't wake up one day and go, I'm going to work in wine. You were probably doing something else or studying something else because nobody was really studying wine back then. Oh, oh yeah. No, no one studied wine. No, I mean, I went to school. I studied uh, political science and uh, uh, modern European history. Oh, one of those uh, helpful uh, degrees. Yeah, I well, said that too. Ex- well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I went to a very politi- politically inspired university. So we were always on the forefront of anything happening in D.C. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, quite honestly, I got a little disillusioned. It was Watergate period and uh, different things like that. And I thought, Mm-mm, politics, I don't think I'm going to go there. Well, so, it's interesting. I worked all through my teenage years on political campaigns and various sure. things like that. Well, it's interesting that you kind of said you didn't think of going west, but really, if you were going to school at that time, there wasn't really all that much to think about out west. It really hadn't hadn't really how we how should we say arrived yet. Uh, California was still kind of in its infancy as a wine making region on a on a on a world renowned scale, shall we say? So, so it's interesting. It's it's not surprising that you went to Europe. Um, it is surprising to me that you spent a lot of time in Spain because really nobody knew about Spain at that point. The, they probably knew the one region of Rioja and that was about it. Um, what, so what exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I lived in Navarra. I mean, I lived in, I actually was teaching English as a second language in Pamplona and then worked a uh, long harvest in Navarra itself in, in a town called San Guesa, uh-huh. about, uh, oh, I guess about 60 kilometers in the mountains uh, to the uh, southeast of, of Pamplona, and it was fascinating. I mean, it was amazing. Is that well, when you a, ran with the bulls? You ran with the bulls? Thing? Yeah, well, that's how I ended up in Spain, was was encouraged by a couple of uh, uh, chums from college who, who whose parents were going to Pamplona every year, and, uh, and, and this one classmate was like, you have to come, and so I was already there, and it was just easy. And then I got the, I got the bug, and I went, um, believe it or not, I went 30 straight years to the running of the bulls in Pamplona, and then finally took a break. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you actually, didn't take a break from wine. You didn't take a break from wine. <laughs> I never else. took a break from wine. <laughs> well, interesting enough, you were actually um, run over by a bull during one of the runnings. Uh, uh, yeah, and, well, which, and, which and happened. Uh, the full circle, I had worked this harvest in Sanguesa. And the last run of the year, besides Pamplona, all the towns and villages have bull runs right. throughout the summer. I mean, starting in mid-June till right. mid-September. And I caught the very last run of the year in, in Sanguesa. And that's where I got uh, hooked by the bull. <laughs> that's where or the, that's eviscerated, where, that's, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> and you actually, oh, well. spent, you actually ended up spending quite a lot of time in the hospital because of it. So. I did it two months. Yeah. 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 I, was, well, I got last rites given to me twice. Oh, my <laughs> Well, we're glad that they didn't have to take effect, that's for sure. Um, you know, speaking of Navarra, which is one of my favorite regions in Spain, it's right near Rioja, it obviously makes wonderful wines as well, but they're not nearly as well known. What did you think about Navarra while you were there that, um, you know, it's kind of that secret region for me that, that uh, I just love the wines from. So tell us a little bit about your feelings about Navarra while we're here, yeah, while I, we're in I Spain. Mean, you know, surprisingly enough, um, where Sanguesa is located, uh, they didn't have much of an influence on, from Rioja. Uh, what, what they concentrated on, of course, was always great rosé. Even, even my very first trip to, to Navarra, 
uh, I think I was drinking some of the best rosés in, in all of Europe. Uh, I mean, uh, really to rival Provence. And then after that, you know, white wine was, was a struggle. And, and, and the reds were, were good, but not great. And I think they really had to find themselves. And, and they started some research stations when I was there in Elite. And from that point on, uh, things started coming together. But I think the Navarans are very proud people, and they're, 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 they come from a long line of nobility, um, much, much more so than, than, quite honestly, and I know I'm going to get slayed for saying this, than, than Rioja. Uh, there, there's this noble line in Navarra and the kingdoms of Navarra. And so uh, the influences were there, but, but not that great. From, from Rioja, where the, where the influences were really strong, were down on the border towns of uh, Navarra and Rioja. Right, right. Well, to me, it kind of always seemed like it was more um, family winemakers, less commercialized winemaking totally. units and things like that. So as, as opposed to the huge commercial industrial kind of winemaking that happens in places in Rioja, that doesn't really exist in no, Navarra. No, give or take se. a few cooperatives. I mean, yeah. it, you're absolutely right. correct. It was all family-run uh, right. wineries. And, and quite honestly, I mean, Navarre has always been a very rich province. Yeah. And they haven't had to look too far out of the province for revenue sources. Um, uh, German motor companies like Volkswagen and, and uh, companies that are making uh, brakes and things like that had invested in that region, geez, sure. 30, 40 years ago. Well, they all need to drink. So they all need to drink this, wine at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. there's always been this uh, modicum of of uh, you know middle upper middle class um, lifestyle there. They, right. they never really have ever suffered, from my knowledge, in post war or from 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 um, poverty or anything like that. Yeah, well, one of my favorite regions of Spain, without a doubt, some of my favorite wines out of Spain as well. So it's um, nice to be able to talk a little bit about that. But you know, you're a Bordeaux specialist. You were the president of the Bordeaux Wine Society. You, you know Bordeaux like the back of your hand probably more than anybody else that I know. So I'd love to talk to you and kind of dig into Bordeaux a little bit, which is obviously the most famous wine region in the world. Um, 10,000 wineries in Bordeaux, 10,000 producers, shall we say, in Bordeaux. Uh, it's a huge region. They make a lot of wine, anywhere from $8 a bottle or $5 a bottle up to $5,000 a bottle. So, okay. you know, let's dig into Bordeaux a little bit and kind of get your feelings on um, Bordeaux the region, Bordeaux the wine, and, and and um, Bordeaux, the entity. Absolutely. Well, I had my first foray into Bordeaux. I was actually living in London and was taking the precursor courses to the uh, Diploma of Wine and Spirits Education Trust. So I started off with the basic certificate and advance and, and then, then moved into the first level of the diploma. And I was working for a gentleman named John Armit, who was the managing director of Corny and Barrow at the time. And I said to John, uh, we, he, had a, he had a partnership restaurant group in Covent Garden. And I said, John, I would love to work a harvest. And he, funny enough, I, I, mean, I was so green then. He said, yeah, I'm either going to send you to the Loire, or uh, Loire Valley, that is, or mm -hmm. I'm going to send you to Domaine de la Romani Conti and, and the Loire family, as in uh, Lulu, <laughs> mm -hmm. or I'm going to send you to the Muex family in Bordeaux. And I, I just said, great, you know, wherever I'll go. <laughs> and, uh, and he just said, you'll, you'll be notified about 12 to 14 days out. He said, have your bags packed, have all your um, 
different um, scheduling accounted for by your colleagues to make sure that all your shifts are accounted for. And, uh, and then off you go. And, and I went off to Bordeaux. I had no idea what I was doing, where I was going, and wow. ended up in Libourne with the Muex family. And, of course, uh, the Muex family, uh, Jean-Pierre Muex, uh, Establishment, Oh my goodness, uh, Petrus and Trontenois and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. just so many great chateaus. I think they were either farming or owned outright when I was there, about 17 different chateaus mm-hmm. in Fronsac, Pomerol, and Saint-Emilion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was the most magnificent experience. It was hard work, brutally hard work, but I ended up staying, I believe, almost two months. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of two months, I said to Christian Muex, Christian, I would love to come back and really see this whole process, the whole year in wine through. And he goes, oh, let me think about it. You go back to London and I'll contact you. So I returned to London in late November. And about a week later, he said, come on back. So I went back in early December and stayed the entire uh, wine harvest calendar year uh, until, until September. And then uh, he said, listen, if you want to continue on, I'll help you out. Uh, why don't you consider champagne? So then I went to Krug and worked with uh, Henri and Remy Krug. Um, but but the Bordeaux experience was just a, an incredible eye-opener. Believe it or not, when I was there, there was 17,000 properties or growers, uh, as they were called, and 10,000 chateaus. And all that's been greatly reduced, as you right. just mentioned, now 10,000 growers with, let's call it 6,000 chateaus, more or less. Wow. There's never an exact count of that. Uh, you know, no one has ever, I think, been able to go around and really do the do count the body. Well, you, you know, I don't think so either. Yeah. I think the the official word these days is ten thousand producers, but you never really right. know. There's, you know, Bordeaux isn't just one region either. Bordeaux is a is a huge amount of subregions. There's Medoc and Pomerol and Saint Emilion yeah. and Fronsac and and so many other smaller regions as well mm-hmm. that kind of fit in within those or around those or near those. So, yeah, and there's the Appalachians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I mean it, it's such a, it, it's a, it's a lot to work and a lot to kind of figure out what's what and where, and where things are. Um, so how do you get a handle on all that really? Yeah, I mean but Bordeaux in, in retrospect is easy compared to Burgundy if we can just make that comparison. Well, that's very true. Uh, what what Burgundy is easy about is that, that you got several grape varieties in Pinot Noir, Gamay and Chardonnay, and in Bordeaux, uh, we we grow the grape variety numbers a little little larger with mm-hmm. the whites coming from Sauvignon Blanc, Semillon, and Muscadel, primarily with with of course other grape varieties in, in, planted in the fields, and then the primary grapes of of for the reds, uh, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot. Um, Malbec, and of course, people are insistent now that that we throw in Carmenere, even though I think there's like nine vines of Carmenere. <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little facetious. They're, they're actually it's a, it's it's a great bragging right, um, right issue. But but Bordeaux is is really a blended wine, the, the whites and reds, and and primarily, I would say, 99% of all Bordeaux reds have Merlot in it. Right. And that's not necessarily true with, on the other side with Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc right. because it really depends on, on where those wines on and where, those where wines the vineyards are, are located and yeah. where it's grown. But well, it's, um, it's easier to understand Bordeaux because everything is wrapped up into the property, which we will call Chateau. Um, right. so, so a winery is a Chateau, and it's an entity where the minefield of Burgundy, of course, is that 70 – Owners can own one 
uh, plot of, of vineyards like Clos de Vougeot, and you can have mm-hmm. 70 different labels. You can't have 70 different labels of uh, Chateau Lafitte Rachio. There's only one, and it's one right. family, the right. Rachio family. So, 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 so Bordeaux in that way is pretty easy to, to, to uh, understand right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then these great brands have been around for so long. I mean, Well, they have I, been around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. 1855 classification is yeah. probably right. one of the greatest marketing coups of all time. I don't think anyone realized it, but I mean, it really paved the way for all these brand names to, mm-hmm. to, to come to the fore, so to That's speak. Right. And just really, really uh, amazing the long legs and the, and the longevity of Bordeaux. And, um, you know, right now, actually, um, you know, great things are going on because all the uh, worlds, and I shouldn't say all the world, but those who have chosen to go on, the, the world's press and, and mm-hmm. tradespeople are in Bordeaux as we speak. Right. Uh, well, this, to, getting to that point, this week yeah. is, is en premiere, which, mm-hmm. which is the annual kind of the annual showcase of, of the features. previous vintage and right. the fu- and, and the, the selling future. off of the futures mm-hmm. and, the, and the marketing of the future, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. You're not there this year. You're in New York, uh, but you've been many times. It's, it's been going on for a long time. There have been a lot of mixed reports on it lately uh, about futures are dead, futures are good. Robert Parker's yeah. actually decided no not longer, to write about futures yeah. anymore because he thinks that the price of Bordeaux kind of reached a, a point where buying futures doesn't really make any difference because the right. price has never gone up or down once you've bought the future or you buy the wine once it's on the market. So tell us a little bit about En Premier and what you right. think about it and where, kind of where do you think it stands these days? You know, uh, just, just, just a quick background. This whole concept of En Premier is a late 1950s uh, concept, if you wish, where, where the, the notion of buyers getting over there looking at the new vintage, you know, in, in, this, in this case, uh, the, the wines are, what, six months, maybe, maybe seven right. months old at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're looking at them in barrel, which is just a complete... Well, it's a snapshot. So yeah. it is a snapshot at the final product. So and so often, so often you taste a wine in barrel, and it's nothing like that once you find it. Well, taste exactly. it a year later in the bottle. So it's, so very it's a crap shot it. too. It really is a crap <laughs> well, shot. Totally, yeah. I mean, literally, are, are we really blowing smoke, <laughs> or is yeah. it for real? But and, a lot of people uh, all over there right now checking it oh, out. They sure are. So yeah, it's a great anyway. marketing coup also. <laughs> yeah, my, my understanding, uh, they're expecting a little over three thousand. Uh, press and trade from around the world this year, probably representing wow. fifty some countries. So it's, wow. a, it's a pretty impressive week. It's a it's a vigorous week. I mean, there's so many tastings. You, you just have to sort of bear down. And the wines are young and they're raw and they're oh. tannic. And yeah. oh my goodness, by the third or fourth day, you, you, your your mouth is so sore. I know people think it's it's, it's easy work, but it's really not. No, it's I mean, not. If you're I mean, fully committed and concentrating. It's 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 a, it's a it's a draw and a drag. I mean, yeah. on the body, you you really feel beat up at the end of the week, and it's uh, but it's very exciting. It, it's in, it's incredible. It, it, it just, in, I mean, so unique to Bordeaux that then the rest of the world, no one does on Premier right. like the Bordeaux. It, it, uh, they got an early start in the late 50s, 60s. I mean, Michael Aaron, when I worked for Michael Aaron at, at Sherry Lehman, his first trip, I think he told me it was in 1958 with his Uncle Sam. I mean, wow. that's pretty amazing isn't it? <laughs> that they were over tasting uh, the raw samples. And uh, uh, the, the, relatively, uh, the relative you know, 
um, you know, idea of like Parker not tasting now um, because because of the pricing not changing and all that. I mean, he, he's he's got some validity in his ideas. Uh, the as you probably know, eleven, twelve, and thirteen all had their challenges after yes. the magnificence nine and tens. Right. Particularly uh, the 13s, just a, a really tough vintage. And yet this whole resistance to Bordeaux not putting their prices down and then Bordeaux are saying, no, we're just reacting to the world market. And the world market says, we'll accept these high prices. And, of course, that's not what's yeah. happening in the U.S. at all. No, not uh, at all. Well, no, not you know, at all. The savvy buyer is saying, forget about it. Maybe the Chinese bought into uh, you know, a, a just good vintage at, at, um, at high prices, but the, but the U.S., n- no way. So is, there um, still a, so is there still a value then in en premier for Bordeaux, do you think? Uh, well, I, th- I think there is at the, can we say, the, the, the de lujo or the deluxe end of, mm-hmm. uh, of those 25, 50, maybe 70 properties whose prices do go up regardless mm-hmm. of what the climate is and what, 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 the, what the vintage is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, in the past, when, when you had a, a lesser than great vintage, the chateau owners would put their pricing down to, to, to satisfy the negotiant, then who the negotiant would pass on those pricing uh, to, to, the, to, to, to the buyers, say, so, so, you know, us. The, right. the people that are actually buying buying the things, but the volatility of where the euro is going and times right now it's so favorable, mm-hmm. but you don't know if in twelve months the euro will be back up at one fifty or something or one forty, right. and this is this is what is really difficult. And then um, the other thing is is for major buyers in the U.S. is just a- a- access to capital. Is very, it's been very hard since 08. I can mm-hmm. assure you that. Right. Uh, it's not been an easy go for, for major futures buyers like Sherry Lehman and K&L out on the West Coast. I mean, and you, and we've seen right. that, in, we've seen that in, in, in luxury wines from just about any region. It's happened to Benello. It's happened to the top pre-rot properties. It's happened to, you know, it's happened to just about everybody. So... Um, obviously, everybody feels that pinch when the economy goes down. People are going to buy $20 bottles of wine and not $50 bottles of wine. Right. So, right. Well, just um, one last word about the, uh, the, the futures market and, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and does it have great validity. I think if, uh, it, if it would run out of steam, Bordeaux would still do just fine. They're, they're smart people. They're, they're, they've got marketing savvy. Uh, do they really need the futures campaign to survive? Absolutely not. They're, 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 they're well-tuned. Uh, there's a lot of money in Bordeaux. Uh, sadly, not, not at the lower-end wines, but, but there's a lot of money up at the Grand Cru level. Mm-hmm. Well, so, there's, a, uh, there's a huge push these days out there by various councils and various entities that are pushing the lower-end Bordeaux wines these yes. days. And they seem to be kind of making a, making a real push for it. Um, well, it's an and the wines are very good. And the wines yeah. are very good, and they're very, very affordable. So, yeah, and well, the price-quality the- ratio, this is the shouting point that, yeah. that, that, from my end, people should wake up and understand that 85% of the production in Bordeaux is, is, is price-point friendly. 
And, and yes, the other 15%, uh, it's skyrocketing through the roof, wines that we can't afford any longer. But, boy, 85% of that production is still very, very affordable. And, and the education yeah. process is important because people need to understand you can drink an affordable and good Bordeaux. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you don't have well, you to know, wait there, 10 years you know, yeah. some, for the wine to mature. Melanie and I love Bordeaux. We drink yeah, we Bordeaux do. on a pretty regular well, basis. We and, and We love yeah. all wine, of course, yes. But we well, love we Bordeaux because, because they, kind of, they, they know how to make it so that it's food-friendly. Mm-hmm. It's always It's always consistent. Um, it's always got a good, consistent alcohol level, so it's not anywhere from 12 to 15%. It's always right in the middle and always a well-balanced wine, so it, it works well with just about everything you do with it. Yeah, uh, right. So we love it for you know, reasons like that as well. But let's right. well, here, here at Italian Wine Merchants, we're, we're, we're seeing our Bordeaux uh, sales grow. I, mean, when, I think one of the great opportunities for me was to come here a couple of years ago and help out with their Bordeaux campaign. Funny enough, we, we were called Italian Wine Merchants IWM, but uh, 67% of our, our, our sales is Italian, but the other 33% is French. Well, that and was so, a question that I was going to ask is, you know, you've, you've been so immersed in Bordeaux and now you're at Italian wine merchants, which, you know, by name, you, you, you think Italian wine, but it's uh, interesting to see that there is a, uh, a fairly large selection of wines at Italian wine merchants. Oh, my goodness. And growing yeah. and growing. I mean, our Burgundy selection is second to none. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have a buyer here. Justin Kowalski, who has just done an unbelievable job over the last mm-hmm. few years of, of building, he's been here about five or six years, and, mm-hmm. and we just have a, 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 really one of the top burgundy selections in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and well, you know about our Italian selection, and, and one of the great joys of being here. I love Italian wines, and it's been such a pleasure to be here and serving as education director. And every single Saturday, we do a tasting of Italian wine. Sometimes uh, we put in, like, two weeks ago, we had Italy uh, versus Burgundy, and then Mm -hmm. we'll do Bordeaux versus uh, Italy. And this weekend, we're doing Spain versus Italy. And it's great. Or or Italy meets Spain, and it's so much fun. Sounds like the World world Cup of Wine. Well, Robin, uh, we're going to have to wrap up. And with that point, are these tastings open to the public? They sure are. They're on our website, which is www.italianwinemerchants.com. Dot com, mm-hmm. And we always post at least a month's worth of tasting. So we have uh, 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 all of April posted okay, for good. every Saturday. And then, uh, in fact, we just had a little powwow last night and uh, did our May menu. So for, 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 for the Saturday tastings. And that will be posted within a few days. So for those and, listening, if you're coming to New York or you're living in New York, stop by Italian Wine Merchants and oh Robin's leading yes. some great tastings. And how do we follow you on uh, social before we wrap up? But, You're on Facebook. Well, for, for, uh, for Twitter, at, mm-hmm. at RKO Vine. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Italian Wine Merchants, of course, at, at Italian Wine Merchants. And we, um, uh, we are... We are Really out there for for you know our website and and offerings. We 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 actually have a an incredible e letter, and I work on it every single day. Mm-hmm. That goes out Monday through Thursday, mm-hmm. and, and you can I, sign up you, at the website for the. You e-letter, can sign right? up on the website, okay, and honestly, and not because I'm working on it, but I think it's one of the best e letters in the business. It is comprehensive. It's educational, and the offerings are you know they're just borderline 
beyond fantastic. Well, Robin, <laughs> that's, you know, we're glad you share that information for everybody listening because anywhere, anyone, anywhere can get the newsletter. We do have to wrap. Um, so we want to thank you for being on, and we can't wait to toast with you in person. David, do you want to have a final thank you? Melanie, David, thank well, you so much. Oh, my goodness, it's been so well, great. Well, it's such a pleasure having Goes you on, Robin. And, you. And, and before you go and before we move on to Andy Blue, Andy I'd, love Blue? To get, I'd love to get one thing from you. Looking into your crystal, my best. <laughs> looking, we will do that. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you think is the next big wine region? Is it one that's already around or is it a new one? Looking into the crystal ball, uh, well, right now, for us, the Italian wine merchants, Sicily. I mean, Sicily. Very hot. Very hot. I was just there in September. You're right. It's perfect. Incredible. Yeah. On my wine bucket list. Awesome. Anyway, Robin, yeah, I've been about four to... times. Well, we'll so, have to have you come back and talk just about Sicily. Oh, I'd love to. Love yeah. to. Well, such a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, we, look my to, pleasure. we look forward to seeing you around in the, uh, in the near future. I'm sure we will. And um, folks, the Robin Kelly O'Connor, Italian Wine Merchants. Thanks so much. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. You are, Take care thank now. You, Robin. you are listening to The Connected Table Live with Melanie Young and David Ransom. Please follow us at Connected Table and find us on Facebook at The Connected Table. And our website is www.theconnectedtable.com. Uh, we are actually honored to have one of the most renowned radio people in the wine business as our next guest. Uh, his name is Anthony Dias Blue, and you can hear his Blue Lifestyle Minute on WCBS. Uh, he is a recognized as a leading expert in food, wine, spirits, and travel. I personally have had the pleasure of working with Andy when he was the wine director at Bon Appetit Magazine for like at least 12 years. Uh, since then, he uh, moved on, as we all have, and he is now um, a owner, co-owner, and editor-in-chief of the Tasting Panel Magazine and Psalm Journal. And I mean, Tasting Panel Magazine is the industry magazine. And of course, I'm, you know, David, my husband David has the cover this month, so I have to brag a little bit. Hello. <laughs> uh, so we're honored to have you, Andy. Welcome. Happy to be here and uh, happy to talk to you guys. Well, we're thrilled to have you on the show, Andy. My editor, I'm very excited to have you on my show. Had to and, uh, <laughs> on for the Baron article that David did. Brag, brag, brag. Hey, speaking of Italy, Andy, uh, we just had Robin Kelly O'Connor on, and he's Cristobal, so Sicily is the next big region. Um, well, I would say after about? Sicily, uh, it would be Calabria. Ooh, Calabria. Mm, we went to Harriet Limbeck's talk on Calabria at um, Italian Wine Week this year. It was very interesting. Very good wines. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And, and really don't forget nice. that Calabria is the birthplace of the Mediterranean diet. Well, that's it's true where yeah. all of that happened. Well, that makes us want to go even more because I'm a big fan of the Mediterranean diet here. It's it's incredibly healthy. We also want to just note that you're you know you are also we didn't mention that you are also a James Beard award winning journalist, member of the Who's Who of food and beverage, and you reach about thirty million consumers each month through various uh, media entities that you have. So that's a that's a big reach out there. You've got a big oh, fan. Yeah. Club. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So we have lots to cover here in our little 20 minutes. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, you've been in the, the magazine business from consumer to trade. What's it like switching over that way? Well, um, you know, obviously you're talking to a, a, a smaller audience, but it's a very much a focused audience and a, and a much more 
involved audience uh, because we uh, we go to a hundred thousand professionals in the business, and uh, at Bon Appetit we were talking to a million and a half uh, readers, but mm-hmm. uh, it's it's very different, and uh, you know I think it's uh, it's it's very gratifying to uh, to to talk to our my peers as it were and and people that really are knowledgeable and uh you know bring them the news of what's happening in their industry in wine and spirits we also in beer we want to promote it's it's comprehensive absolutely i mean spirits well, is, is a very very important part of that yes matter of fact we just had the uh the san francisco inter uh, world spirits competition uh two weekends ago and uh we had this is something that I started 15 years ago, uh, and the first year we had 292 entries, and this year we had 1,600 entries. That, that's a lot of spirits. That's a lot, that's of, a judging. lot of spirits. That's a lot of spirits. That's a lot of I know. Judging. I I know. I'm one of the ju- I'm one of the judges that um, works with you in our on New the, York uh, branch. In, yes. In, yeah. in, in, the, in the New York competition, and four uh-huh. years in, we've got something like 400 entries this year. So it's obviously a growing category, and and for me, it's a lot of fun to be on the judging side as well as the writing side with you uh, to kind of you know help work with influencing. Well, I think in, you know in order to be yeah. An informed writer, you have to you have to stick your tongue out there. You do absolutely. <laughs> you know? Well, you got to you got to be able to back up what you're writing about too. That's for sure, and 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 realize exactly. what you're and 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 know what you're writing about. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the questions I had for you is, you know, in the last five to ten years, there's been a lot of shift in both the wine and spirits industry. Um, sure. Uh, what do you find some of the most significant changes have been? Well, in spirits in general, because it's you know the growth in that in that industry has just been spectacular, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I think that uh, you know to 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 hone in on a few things. For example, the first year that we did the competition, we had nine uh, gins entered. This year we had 140. So clearly, there's a trend there. And uh, I think that's it's driven by uh, mixologists. So because not so many people drink gin straight, but they certainly drink it in cocktails. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, obviously, the growth in bourbon is just phenomenal. Huge. And, uh, yeah, it's and also the growth in in Asian spirits. Believe it or not, you know, we're talking about. Well, you know, that Suntory came in and bought Beam, so obviously uh, there's some action there, and uh, Suntory produces uh, the Yamazaki line of, uh, of spirits and yeah. of, of whiskeys, and they're absolutely brilliant. They win a double gold. They win double golds every, every year. Well, it's interesting, and, you, interesting you say that because there was just an article that I read today that asked the question, are the Japanese beating the Scotch at the single malt game now? <laughs> well, you know they do. You know how the Japanese operate. They, uh, they, the same way they did automobiles. They they went and bought a car, right. took it apart, mm-hmm. and said, "Oh, we can do this." And then they built it. Now they did the same thing with with single malt. They bought Macallan and they bought Bowmore, and right. they watched how that was done, and then they built the most gorgeous distillery you've ever seen just outside of Kyoto hmm. and uh, there you go they're uh, they're in business and they're really doing great stuff great well, stuff. They're, they're and, but there's another there's another comer in that 
industry, and that right. is uh, Cavalan, which is from Taiwan. And uh, they were actually named the uh, Distiller of the Year this year because they won four double gold medals and two silvers. Uh, they make some absolutely incredible uh, whiskeys. They do. I actually had the pleasure of tasting those um, in at a luncheon in New York last fall, and they were just phenomenal spirits. They were amazing. Really beautifully yeah. made. Beautifully I have a made. bottle of them uh, sitting right here on my desk. Well, I wish we were with you. <laughs> so obviously craft has been one of the driving forces craft is definitely a, a driving force and you know it's there's no diff- there's no real legal definition of craft yet right. so uh, I think that uh, there's a little fudging going on in certain areas but yeah. uh, the the preponderance of, of, of craft Spirits. I mean, obviously, they focus mainly on whiskey, and uh, they're very good. They're very good, no question about it. And uh, so, and in wine, obviously, the big, the big trend is away from. Well, I mean, Chardonnay is still the best-selling variety in the in the in the market, but there's a huge trend towards uh, aromatic whites. Such as Albarino and Albarino and Torontos and, 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 and uh, you know all of that stuff. And sure, right. And so people love that. Yeah, <laughs> which is great because that, I think there. And a lot of that, like, I think, a lot of that, I think, has to do with the the rise of regions in the world that grow right. those grapes and don't grow Chardonnay. <laughs> As well, because yes. that 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 puts that into the public eye, saying you know we don't grow Chardonnay, we grow this, and seeing as you like us, you need to drink this. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Chardonnay kind of got the imitation. I remember back when people go, "I have a Chablis," and then everybody's like, "I'll never have a." Chablis. And you know, there's some really great Chablis out there, but it got a bad rep. And then it, they kind of have it with Chardonnay. It's like you're a Chardonnay drinker. Oh no, let's go another way. But there's some really great ones too. So. Well, there are great Chardonnays. Yeah, excellent oh, ones. So it's it's just they've been kind of mocked, like Merlot was mocked in sideways. You know, it's, it's funny because right. I actually. I had a we opened a bottle of Chardonnay a little while back, a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't had a Chardonnay literally in months. And yeah. I said, and I said to Melanie, I said, you know what? This is great stuff. Why don't we yeah. drink more Chardonnay? <laughs> <laughs> it got a bad rap. It got, it, when well, people start you know, naming your dogs Chardonnay, that's when it starts. It when you start naming your children and dogs after something, that's when it falls out of favor. I'm convinced. Yeah, and people move but, on. You know, it's still yeah. the number one uh, selling mm-hmm. variety in in the U.S. market. So. What can I tell you? I think there's also a big trend towards blended uh, reds. You know, yeah. and it seems like as people become more sophisticated and more educated, uh, they realize that, well, you know, God, the, the the great red wines of of Europe, particularly Bordeaux, mm-hmm. they're blends, and right. um, blend is an interesting way of of enhancing what you get out of the ground. I mean, it's basically. Uh, it's a little bit of a, of a, what shall I say? Um, it's a finagle in a sense, but it's also uh, if you've got a wine that's that's very lush and not doesn't have a lot of structure, let's say a Merlot, and what do you do? You put some Cabernet, Cabernet in it and gives it it gives it structure and it gives it balance. So, you know, I think that uh, blends are definitely the th- a thing, a coming thing, and particularly also the Rhone blends. Mm-hmm. Where you have Grenache, Syrah, Morvedre, all of those things mm-hmm. going together. So, 
What can I say? I think it's an exciting time in wine. It's an exciting time in spirits. Well, there's so much to choose from on both sides, both wine and spirits. Mm -hmm. And there's so many regions that just nobody, that didn't really exist on a global scale back when, you know, at least when we were getting into the wine business many years ago, that, um, that are, that are there for us to try now that we never even really knew about. And, and case in point, places like Moldavia, wines in Eastern Europe that that we didn't, that we never even knew about places like Macedonia, Moldova, Greece, even. Yeah, Macedonia. Um, Nobody knew about those wines back then because they weren't, they weren't available to us, so it's nice to be. Well, able they weren't to... international uh, quality either, and they, and they've Very all true. kind of they've all kind of really pulled themselves up. You know, I've noticed uh, I've been tasting a lot of the wines from Slovenia, and they're really absolutely wonderful. And and it's because they I went there uh, I don't know 15 years ago, and they were just getting it together, and uh, you know the potential was there, obviously, but uh, now they're really making great wine. So it's yeah. exciting. It's an exciting time in wine. I remember when I started out, which was a lot sooner than you guys, I think, because I'm a lot older. Uh, <laughs> not, was, not, as, not as much older as you think. <laughs> but we're not going to go there. That's a different Sometimes story. we all catch up. You know, it all catches up and eats and out at some point. <laughs> but anyway, I remember uh, tasting wines that were really bad. I mean, flawed. I mean, they yeah. had uh, red wood, redwood tanks and Ugh. and all sorts of weird uh, spoilages and so on like that. I don't, you don't see that anymore. No, you uh, don't. I think because the because the winemaking techniques just globally have gotten so much better, right. and the equipment has gotten so much better, right. and the knowledge of how to make a wine well has gotten better, and has been shared all over the world now because everybody wants the industry to do well. Right. But but you know what? I just want to bring up just a segue there. We we do want to just touch on the fact that you know recently there was this huge story about arsenic levels of arsenic in some of the wines, which is not you know the best of the winemaking tradition. Um, and there's now a class action lawsuit going on about that. Do you, first of all, I, you know, without naming names, do you think that the response by the um, producers was well was was handled well? I mean, what what do you do in this situation? Uh, yeah, I mean, the ones who weren't mentioned, obviously, uh, <laughs> I mean, they were all very big or, names, you know, but we yeah, won't but mention the ones that were mentioned, uh, you know, I don't know whether they've responded properly or not. I mean, or whether they've done anything about it. It's, it's a little too early to, to, to say, well, I think uh, I think it's a I think it's an ongoing story right now because information at the really information is still being gathered. Yeah. So you know, and one of right. the things I just read today is that arsenic occurs naturally in the soil that the grapes are grown in. So there's that uh, there's that true. part of it as well. So yeah, it's also so how rice, so, so how do you how do you then strip that out of a wine if it's going to be there in the beginning uh, to begin with? Right? You know, and I think they're you know have they established what the trace elements, mm-hmm. you know what percentage or de- degree or, or whatever of trace elements like that uh, are dangerous and which aren't. I mean, right. we're at the beginning of that story, I think. I think we're at the beginning, too, because um, I was just also reading, like, rice has low levels of arsenic in it because a lot of women or moms are concerned about serving their children rice. I mean, arsenic appears in other things, but I think the issue is that the levels were higher than they should be. Um, and, and if this was another industry, like a drug or a mm-hmm. food, there would be a recall is how it would work. But I don't, you know, they, they're at that point now because there's a lot of information is still being gathered. Well, I think the only thing to be worried about is the same kind of overreaction that, uh, mm-hmm. that took place with sulfites. 
yes. which are are naturally occurring and mm-hmm. and which uh, in wine there's a whole lot less sulfite than there is in a salad uh, and and, and the vegetables and so on that you buy in a store. I mean, it it's it was thanks to uh, one particular senator who who passed this law that says that you have to say contain sulfites. Mm-hmm. And there's less than one tenth of one percent of the people in the, this world are are sensitive to that. Right. So, you know. Well, that was, I think I think I think the the key is for listening is this don't have a panic because the facts yeah. really you know aren't there and you know many foods contain different elements and and you can't start pointing a lot of fingers but you know that's a bigger issue on the growing food insecurity issue in this country that's not hunger but like food fear which is now starting to hit the headlines in a very big way yeah yeah and 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 being worried about um what uh what you are eating so uh you mentioned calabria as a region is you know where where are you packing your bags to go and why uh, we're in Italy or any place else. Oh, anywhere, anywhere. anywhere. What you know? You've been every. Hey, you've been everywhere. Where, where, where you need to go now? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I love South America, and and uh, mm. I think Argentina is just unbelievable, and I like it so much that I bought a vineyard down there. So uh, oh. it's yeah. Well, it's it's really incredible. The, it has the same unique uh, ability to grow grapes that uh, there is on the uh, on the um, eastern side of the Cascades in Washington State. What you have is you have mountains blocking the weather to some extent, and there's a desert on the other side. So mm-hmm. all of that uh, Mendoza area is is really desert. And what makes that exciting for growing grapes is a grapes require poor soil, and B, the fact that their elevations are so high, they, they can grow grapes at 3,000 to 5,000 feet above sea level, and uh, because of, the, because of the, the, the status of the, of the weather, they have you know, hot days and cool nights, which is the absolute perfect uh, climate in which to grow grapes. Mm-hmm. And low humidity, so it's it's really uh, an ideal place. And it's a beautiful area too. Oh, it's fabulous. Which which doesn't hurt. What's the name of your What's the name of your vineyard, your winery, Andy? Well, it's part of a it's part of a thing called the Auberge de Vin, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a we have a resort there and uh, a vineyard around it, and the vineyard is uh, has a little has a little winemaker named uh, Michelle Roland. Oh, oh. We, we had the pleasure of spending some time with him in New York last October. He's one of the most delightful people I know. He is such a nice guy. Really yeah. a great guy. Really I, I thought is. he would be unapproachable. We, had, we spent the longest time in a cab in a traffic jam together. We were taking selfies of each other. He's really, really great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, he's only consulting at about 100 different wineries. But I know. Yeah. Well, we're trying to get him on the show, but we just can't get him in a time zone that works for him and for us. So we're still working on that. <laughs> but soon. So we have about um, a two minutes left. Uh, so, yeah, just to give you your heads up. Um, any, anything that you'd like to with delicately say, anything you'd like to see kind of go away? Any trends that you think are more noise than news? Uh, 
that's a tough one. I don't know. I think that, the, that there's this, you know, the whole the whole thing with the sensitivity on on a lot of subjects is beginning to annoy me. But anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just I guess I want to do a little plugging and just say that the the results for the uh, if they're interested, the results for the uh, San Francisco World Spirits competition will be up on the website. In a couple of days, and oh, good. the website is sfwinecomp.com, and uh, it's it's real worth seeing because this is is a good shopping list. Very and then, and SF Wine uh, Comp. SF, say, say it again, please. SFWineComp, C-O-M-P, okay. dot com. Okay, and, good. Uh, it's right there. And How many wines are going to be on? Oh, I'm, I gave you the wrong one. It's SF Spirits Comp. Oh, and SF Spirits. The wine okay. comp is not till June. Well, I was wondering SF about that. Okay. SFSpiritsComp.com. Okay. And that, uh, there's uh, 1,600 spirits judged. That's a lot. That's a lot of spirits to judge. Well, yes. and you'll you'll we'll be doing the one in New York again in September, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, indeed. The, the New York wine, the New York world, spirits, yeah. yeah, New York so, world wine and spirits competition. We do both wine and spirits at the same time, right. and which you uh, founded. We, we had about six hundred entries last year, and I think we'll you know we'll increase that. Oh, I think we'll beat that this year, and we have a good lineup of judges, which is still in formation. But I hear we're doing well on that front too. So yes. that'll be it'll be fun Very to be a definitely. part of that. I look forward to it. And your own website is www.bluelifestyle.com. Bluelifestyle.com, and it's got all my the recommendations of wines and spirits from the radio show, and uh, my blog and. And your podcast, you can listen to your shows because your show is on WCBS at different times. Correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I also do an hour-long show, which is uh, which is heard at about 200 stations around the country, and that is on the website as well. And they're terrific shows. I encourage everybody listening to go to www.bluelifestyle.com, and of course, Tasting Panel Magazine you can find online as well. Tasting Panel Mag. Yes, it's ta- Tasting Panel. TastingPanelMag.com, and it's right. also uh, the Psalm Journal is also part of that group as well. Also, must yeah. reads if you're in the industry, really must and, reads. Uh, Andy, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, I can't wait to see that list because it's a great shopping list for anybody who wants to really kind of dial down and pick the best of the best. Yes, indeedy. Well, <laughs> right. Andy, such a pleasure. Thanks so having, much. I love you guys. You, such a pleasure having you on the show. We look forward to seeing you soon, of course, and uh, and um, either in the magazine or or near the magazine. All right. Terrific. All righty. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so much. Take care now. Folks, uh, wonderful hour on the radio today, 50 minutes actually, talking with uh, Andy Blue and Robin Kelly O'Connor about wine and the wine industry and the spirits industry. And uh, we covered a lot of bases. So it's pleasure having both of those folks on the show today. And Melanie, thank you thoughts? so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, we're at Connected Table and the Connected Table on Facebook. Follow us, like us, share us, and find us on iHeart.com anytime under Shows and Personalities. Thank you.